Welcome to my podcast. Podtunes is the perfect way to fall asleep while listening to the best horror, history, and true crime stories. This podcast is presented by Bed Temporis, bedtime stories that will keep you up at night. This episode includes discussion of murder, sexual assault, violence, and explicit language that some listeners may find offensive. Listener's discretion is advised. Today I'm joined with Ellie as we explore a true crime story called The Phantom Killer. The Phantom Killer's crimes has created the inspiration behind the legendary story called The Hook. Here is our variation of this scary story. It was a foggy night in the late 1950s. Lorraine and Walter both snuck out to take a late-night drive. When they reached the highway, Lorraine's car came to a screeching halt. Moments after her car stalled, a news report came over the radio and explained a deranged man escaped from the Northern State Correctional Facility. Police describe him as a tall man with a hook for a hand. Both panicking, they realized the Northern State Correctional Facility is only five miles away from Interstate 35, where her car had broken down. Waiting to see headlights of another car passing by, Lorraine gets out of her car to open her hood. While she's outside, she sees a figure of a man standing across the highway on the opposite shoulder. Terrified because of the radio announcement, she gets back into the car and tells Walter about the shadowy figure she saw. Walter takes another drag of the cigar and wanders outside with a flashlight to investigate the so-called shadow man that Lorraine claimed that she saw. Meanwhile in the car, Lorraine hears a loud scratching sound. She looks around, expecting it to be Walter playing tricks on her. She yells, Walter, stop! Moments later, she hears a dripping sound on the roof of the car. Biting her fingernails, a slam from the front of her car jolts her as she sees Walter's dead body shattering the windshield. Lorraine is pulled from the car. She feels a violent pain coming from her leg. She looks down and sees that there's a hook sunken into her kneecap, leaving her paralyzed. Lorraine and Walter are both left to bleed out. The killer disappeared into the misty night. Later, when the police showed up, the only evidence left behind was a hook. The Texarkana Moonlight Murders were a series of unsolved murders and other violent crimes committed in and around Texarkana in the spring of 1946 by an unidentified serial killer known as the Phantom Killer or Phantom Slayer. The killer is credited with attacking eight people within ten weeks, five of whom were killed. February 26, 1946, a Friday night around 11.45, Jimmy Hollis, age 25, and his girlfriend, 19-year-old Mary Jean Luray, parked on an empty road known as Lover's Lane after watching a movie together. Ten minutes later, a man wearing a white cloth mask, a pillowcase-like material with eye holes cut out, arrived at Jimmy's driver's side door, flashing a light in the window. Assuming it was a prank, Jimmy told him that he had the wrong person, to which the mysterious man responded, I don't want to kill you so do as I say. Both Jimmy and Mary were told sternly to exit the driver's side door, and the man told Jimmy to remove his goddamn britches. After he complied, the man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. Mary told investigators that the noise of the strikes were so intense she initially thought that Jimmy had been shot, when it had actually been his skull breaking. Thinking the man wanted to rob them, Mary showed him Jimmy's wallet to prove that he had no money, after which she was hit with a blunt object. The man ordered her to run up the road. Mary spotted an old car parked off the road. 
but found it empty and was again confronted by the attacker who asked her why she was running. When she responded that he had told her to do so, he called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. After the assault, Mary fled on foot, running half a mile to a nearby house. She attempted to call for a car passing by the residence, but was ignored. Mary was able to awaken the residents of the house and phone the police. Jimmy had regained consciousness and managed to flag down a passerby on Richmond Road. The motorist left Jimmy at the scene and drove to a nearby funeral home where he was able to call the police. Within 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. They found Jimmy's pants a hundred yards away from the parked car. Mary was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound. Jimmy was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures, but both survived the attack. Only one month later, the phantom killer strikes again. However, this time the victims will not survive. Richard L. Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend Polly Ann Moore, age 17, were found dead in Griffin's car on Sunday, March 24, 1946. The motorist saw the parked car on Lover's Lane. The motorist at first thought that they were both asleep. Griffin was found between the front seats, on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. Polly Ann Moore was found sprawled out face down in the back seat. There is evidence, however, to suggest that she was killed on a blanket outside the car and placed there. Griffin had been shot twice while still in the car. Both had been shot once in the back of the head and both were fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of earth near the car suggested to police that they had been killed outside of the car and placed back inside. A bullet shell was also found, possibly shot from a Colt pistol wrapped in a blanket. A few weeks later, 17-year-old Paul Martin went to pick up his friend Betty Jo Booker, age 15, from her musical performance. This was the last time the pair were seen alive. Martin's body was found around 6.30 a.m. that morning by Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver and their son. Paul's body was lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. Blood was found further down the other side of the road by a fence. He had been shot four times once through the nose, once through his ribs, a third time in the right of his hand, and finally in the back of his neck. A search was conducted to find Betty's body. Her body was not found until approximately 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from Martin's body, behind a tree. Her body was lying on its back, fully clothed. Betty had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. The weapon used was the same as in the first double murder, which turned out to be a 32 automatic Colt pistol. Paul's car was found about three miles away from Betty's body and about a mile and a half away from his body. Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Manuel Gonzalez said that the examinations of the bodies indicated that they both had put up a terrific struggle. The final crime committed by the Phantom Killer happened on Friday, May 3rd. Virgil Starks, age 37, a farmer and a welder, was in his modest ranch-style house. He sat in his armchair while watching his favorite weekly radio show in the living room, while Katie was in her bedroom lying on her bed in her nightgown. She had heard something from the backyard and asked Virgil to turn down the radio. Seconds later, while Virgil was reading the newspaper, two shots were fired into the back of his head from a closed double window three feet away. Katie did not hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard what was like the sound of breaking glass. She thought that Virgil had dropped something and went to see what happened. As she entered the doorway of the living room, she saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slump back into his chair. She saw blood, then ran to him, lifted his head up, and when she realized he was dead, she ran to phone the police.
She dialed the phone number two times before being shot twice in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other went in just below her lip, breaking her jaw and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. She dropped to her knees, but soon managed to get back onto her feet. She ran to get a pistol from the living room, but was blinded by her own blood. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch. She thought she was going to be killed, so she stumbled toward her bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps into the side screen porch through the back screen door. She heard the killer coming through the kitchen window, so she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door, leaving behind a virtual river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefoot and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran 50 yards more to Prater's house. Prater answered her call for help. She gasped, Virgil's dead, then collapsed. Prater shot a rifle into the air to summon another neighbor, Elmer Taylor, along with Mr. and Mrs. Prater and their baby. They took Katie Starks to the hospital. Although she lost a considerable amount of blood, she did not go into shock, and her heart rate remained the same. She was questioned by Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis while she was in the operating room. Luckily, she survived. The investigation was successful in linking these murders and assaults together. Almost 400 suspects were arrested, but they were unsuccessful in determining who committed these horrific crimes. Thanks for listening to this episode. Podtoons is updated on a weekly basis, so be sure to tune in next week as we return to cover another chilling paranormal experience. Research and references will be linked in the description below.